Our sermon text is from Romans 1. Again, listen carefully to the gospel of God's Son. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as it is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. As far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Bless us by your spirit, the same spirit who inspired these words and who lives in us so that we might hear and then do your word. We ask for these things humbly and yet fervently in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, especially after what we've been through as a, as a body in the past days. It is good to come into God's presence and into the presence of God's people, to be with one another before the throne of God, worshiping Him and receiving His good gifts. There's no place that I would rather be than here right now. And so I thank you for coming and worshiping with me. What do we do with a passage like Romans 1, verses 8 to 15? When we read the New Testament epistles, we know we're reading someone else's mail, but some sections in Paul's letters highlight more than others that we really are outsiders looking in. Last week's text was on the first seven verses, Paul's salutation. The next sermon, next time, will be on the theme of Romans, which Paul states famously in verses 16 and 17. And here between those two passages is Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for the Roman believers. In verses 1 to 7, Paul stresses his call as an apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Here in verses 8 to 15, Paul's thanksgiving and prayer are framed specifically in terms of his desire to make an apostolic visit to the predominantly Gentile churches, Christians in Rome. He longs to exercise his apostolic ministry among the believers in the world's capital city. 
the world's capital city, Rome. He yearns to see them face to face and to share some spiritual gift with them. He eagerly desires to proclaim and apply the gospel of God's Son to them as individuals and as congregations. And we saw last week that there were multiple congregations in Rome. So what's in this for us? How does this connect with us in the 21st century? We're not apostles. None of us has an apostolic commission from God. We're not specifically called then to anything like Paul's apostolic ministry. Or are we? Well, yes and no, as we'll see. But since we're no longer in the apostolic era, let's just focus on the discontinuity here. We're no longer in the apostolic era. Since there are no more apostles at large, since so much of verses 8 to 15 applies to a specific first century context and, and specific relationships and, and has no parallel, maybe, in the 21st century, at least not a direct one, shouldn't we just move quickly through Paul's highly situated introduction and just get to the universal meat in verses 16 and 17? Well, that's what some have done, but this, is, this route misses a golden opportunity to learn from Paul what fellowship and mutual service are to look like among the people of God. In verses 8 to 15, Paul casts a rich and detailed vision for gospel-centered fellowship in the church. In other words, most of what we see Paul doing, or at least wanting to do, hoping to do, in this passage are activities that all of us should be doing regularly in our ministries to one another. Paul's apostolic ministry was unique, but there's nothing uniquely apostolic about Paul's vision for fellowship and mutual ministry in verses 8 to 15. Every one of us is called to the ministry that Paul outlines in this paragraph. Not as apostles, but as Christians, as baptized Christians who are members of the body. These are just the things that Christians do. We thank God for one another's faith. Verse 8, we pray for one another regularly. Verse 9. We long to see one another face to face. Verses 10 and the first part of 11. We share spiritual gifts with one another for mutual edification. Verse 11. We establish one another in the faith. Verse 11. We encourage one another in the faith. Verse 12. And we speak the gospel to one another constantly so that the gospel forms the backbone of our fellowship and our ministry to one another. Verses 13 to 15. You don't need to be an apostle to do any of these things. You don't have to be an elder or a vocational pastor or a deacon or an intern to do any of these things. You don't even have to be an adult to engage in this kind of ministry and fellowship. Children, this is for you just as much as your parents. This kind of Mutual edification, encouragement, and ministry. 
Every one of you in here is called to ministry. You've been called to ministry. So you, you don't need to be an apostle or wear a collar or a robe or go to seminary to do any of these things. You only need to be a baptized Christian, a member of the body of Christ. And if you are that, you're specifically called to do these things in and with and for the body. I draw seven principles for gospel-centered fellowship from this passage, from Paul. And they form the outline on your handout. I'll remind you that those handouts, there's a front back, one, answer, one side has the answers if you just, you know, if you're holding kids or you're just not interested in filling it out. Uh, you just want to follow, but if, if you do want to fill it out, then don't peek, you know, just go, go to the Go to the side with just the, the blank lines, and I, and I have the answers down below that you can pick from. They're not in order, so you have to kind of do some work, but you can fill that out. And those, those are the seven principles that we're going to walk through. The first principle is that Christians thank God for one another. Specifically in verse 8, Paul thanks God for their faith. Of first importance, Paul says. I'll also remind you that... I. I so when I read the passage, I read from the New King James, but as I walk through the passage during the sermon, I'm going to refer to my translation so you get two different translations, two different perspectives. Of first importance, Paul says, and he uses an emphatic, emphatic expression there. Those first two words are in the Greek are emphatic. Of first importance, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed in the whole world. Now, up in verse 7, Paul had reminded the Roman Christians that they are called to be holy, set apart. Now, in verse 8, he expresses his gratitude that they are walking in holiness, that, that the fruit is coming out, that obedience of faith is seen throughout the world. All over the known world, the believers in Rome are being talked about because of their living, active faith in Jesus. This was a big deal. Vibrant Christians and thriving churches in the world's capital city. It was the talk of the empire, at least among the people of God, and Paul was thankful for what he was hearing. Thankful for this good report. Now, it's not as though Paul is grateful because the, Rome, the, the Christians in Rome were without problems. You know, they were perfect saints. Like any Christian community, they had their difficulties and immaturities, struggles, sins, disagreements, tensions. There were, there were tensions specifically among the, the believers there between the Jews and the Gentiles. Later in his letter, Paul's going to address some of, the, some of these things, that the doctrinal and the relational shortcomings among the Roman believers. But Paul leads with gratitude. Not with their faults, but with gratitude. He begins with thanksgiving. And this is important. He, 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 he leads with gratitude because he's genuinely thankful for what God is doing in their lives. And that's of first importance for him and his perspective and the way he thinks about these Christians in Rome. Not, not the problems that he's going to have to address in his letter. You know, he, heard about them. he heard about those things too but he leads with gratitude. Are you grateful 
for the faith and the faithfulness uh, that, that God is working in fellow Christians. In your prayers, do you give thanks for other believers? Do you thank God for your fellow church members, you know, starting right here? It's easy to criticize and complain about the faults and foibles of other Christians. It's tempting to focus on how the Christian community doesn't meet your needs. Maybe, maybe you're frustrated with, you know, by the lack of, of something in, in your community, the lack of holiness or spiritual commitment, outreach, maybe the lack of reaching out to you, lack of the kind of friendships that you were hoping for among the Christians in your circles. When you're tempted to give in to that critical spirit, that, that peevish spirit, just remember how much God has to complain about if he wanted. And yet, and yet it's not in the heart of God to gripe about Christians. I mean, I mean think of, of how much he, could, you know, he would have to gripe about. I mean, just starting with me. I could list a lot of things, but that's not in his heart. That's not how God leads either. Gratitude is like love. Christian gratitude is like Christian love. God-like love doesn't love someone only when there are no deep flaws in that person, right? If that were the case, then God wouldn't be able to love anyone because we all have deep flaws. No, God-like Love is, is what it is precisely because it loves others, it loves people who have deep flaws, in the face of their deep flaws. Gratitude works in a similar way. Christians don't just thank God for believers who are without deep flaws. No, we thank God for the living faith of those who, like us, still have a lot of maturing to do. So if you're not overflowing with gratitude for the fellow flawed humans in this sanctuary, we could start here, in this sanctuary, including the deeply flawed guy preaching to you, it's probably because you don't spend enough time thanking God for them, for us, in your prayers. So fix that starting this week. When you're tempted to grumble to your spouse, say, about someone at church, when you're tempted to gossip and complain about other believers, you know, pick up the phone and, and talk to whoever it is, you, you, you know, you, you complain to. When you're tempted to become discouraged because your Christian friends aren't on your wavelength, instead of giving in to that spirit of criticism, turn to Christ and thank him for the mighty work he's doing in the believer or believers that frustrate you most that irritate you most, whatever it is. And if, if, you're un, you, know, if you try to do that, and if, if, there's, if you're unable to think of anything, it's probably not a reflection of just how bad that person is, right? Um, it, it's far more likely an indication of an, of an ungrateful heart. Of first importance, Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you, warts and all. The second principle broadens the first. Christians pray for one another. Verse 9 says, For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit, in the gospel 
of his son that I constantly make mention of you. In service to God and his gospel, Paul constantly mentions the Romans to God. Christians serve God by praying for their brothers and sisters. Christians serve God by praying for their brothers and sisters. You serve God in your spirit, in the gospel of his son. When you make mention of your fellow believers in prayer, when you just sit down or bow, whatever you do, get on your knees, (coughs) sit in your chair while you're reading your Bible, and you just make mention of God's people to God. Didn't have to be fancy prayers, just make mention of God's people in prayer. One of the ways that you can do this is, is by praying through the directory. Some, some of you all are, are working on a new directory, a new church directory for us, and that's a vital service to the body, to our body. A church directory is important not just because it's handy to have fellow members contact info in case we need to get a hold of somebody. It's, it's, its main purpose, in my eyes, is to aid us in praying for one another. And I know some of you have told me you use it just for, uh, mainly for that. Praying through the directory is one great way to love the, your family members in the household of God. It, it's an invisible love. No one but God sees it, but it's true love. You, you, you're you're going you, to pray for the people you love. That's just a, a spiritual law. Christians pray for the people they love. If you're not overflowing with love for the fellow flawed humans in this sanctuary, including the deeply flawed guy preaching to you, it's probably because you don't spend enough time interceding for them, for us, in prayer. It's amazing how God cultivates in us that gratitude and that love when we are giving thanks and praying for the saints. So fix that starting this week. Get out your old directory. The new one is coming. But until then, get, it, get the old one out and start praying for people by name. Mention them to God. If you, if you don't know what to pray for, you can always pray for faith, hope, and love. You can always pray for the power of the gospel to be unleashed in this person's life. You can always pray that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight and discernment. You can always pray that God would deliver them from temptation today. You can always pray for them according to whatever scripture you happen to be reading that day in your Bible reading. It's a good way to read the Bible is to use it as, uh, as the content of your prayers for yourself and for others. But if you can't think, think of anything, that's okay. Just at least do us the favor of mentioning our names to God. And, and start with one person a day. Perhaps one page in the directory. Ask God to, to bless the person or, the, or the, the family and name each member of the family by name. And, and just mention them to God. And, and ask for a general blessing. God will take care of the rest. If you want to increase your gratitude and love for the Christians in your life, start, start giving thanks for them and interceding for them, mentioning them to God 
in your time with the Lord. This is how you can serve God and love the brethren. The third principle is that Christians long to see one another. Verses, verse 10 and the first part of verse 11. So verse 10 completes the sentence that, be, that Paul began in verse 9. Always in my prayers asking if perhaps now at last I might succeed by God's will in coming to you. Verse 11, for I long to see you. Paul's fellowship with the believers in Rome was severely limited as long as he was unable to spend time with them face to face. He could write letters to them all day long, but he needed to see them and touch them and hear them and pray with them, eat with them. The deepest kind of Christian fellowship can't happen on social media. It can't, it can't happen through any medium at all, the deepest kind. The best, most intimate kind of fellowship happens where, where mediums are non-existent. I know Clay's thinking about the microphone right now, this medium of the microphone. <clears throat> but that, that deepest fellowship among the saints happens immediately. Immediately and in real time. Where, where, where there's eye contact and, and the right hand of fellowship and hugs and facial expressions and nuances and voice are experienced immediately in real time. Do you enjoy the do you enjoy face-to-face -face time with the brethren? Is that a does that bring you delight? Do you look forward to it? If it doesn't bring you joy to spend time with the fellow flawed humans in the in this sanctuary including the deeply flawed guy preaching to you, it's probably because you need to spend more time with us. If you don't look forward to seeing the rest of us at church or having fellowship with us in your home or in, in our home, it, it might be because you need to spend more time with us. So fix that starting this week. Invite someone over for supper if you're not in the habit of doing that. Meet someone for coffee uh, before work to read scripture and to pray for the day. Spend time with someone you don't know well but that you are covenanted with in this body. Show up for Sunday school. Stay for the potluck. Come to church more regularly. Cultivate a longing to be with the people of God. Christians long to see one another. Number four, Christians share spiritual gifts with one another. Verse 11b. The third and fourth principles go together. Why did Paul long to see the, the Roman Christians? The second part of verse 11 says, in order, to share, in order to share some spiritual gift with you. So it's, he's spiritually minded in this longing to be with God's people. Now, Paul isn't using spiritual gift in some kind of technical sense here. Uh, when I was growing up, churches gave people these tests to determine what their spiritual gifts were. You'd, you'd fill out these, you know, these surveys, and you might find out that you had the spiritual gift of encouragement or administration or evangelism. 
Different surveys had different gift taxonomies. And sometimes people would debate about how many spiritual gifts there were, how many you could have, you know. I don't think any of that's helpful. And more important, I don't see any of that in the New Testament. You know, there might be some helpful aspects about it, I guess. But uh, in general, I don't think that's a good way to go. You don't discover your spiritual gifts by taking a test or survey. You discover them, listen to this, not by looking inward, but by looking around you. And seeing the needs. You find out which spiritual gift you need to employ by loving the brethren and getting involved in the body. That'll tell you everything you need to know about your spiritual gifts in this season of life. Your gifts will manifest themselves as you commit yourself to loving others. So, so you don't need to look inside and, and examine yourself or find out what your personality type is or anything like that to find your spiritual gifts. You look outside of you to see which spiritual gifts are needed. When you are face-to-face with a brother who needs your encouragement, you, you share with that person the spiritual gift of encouragement. When you find yourself talking with a person who does not know the Lord, who is not trusting in the promises of God, you exercise the spiritual gift of evangelism. It's just what you do. So don't, don't, one, don't wonder whether encouragement or evangelism or spiritual or you know, some other you know, gift, is, administration is your spiritual gift. Just share the spiritual gift when you have the opportunity to do so. My gift is not administration, but there have been times in my life where I've had to exercise that gift more or less. The reason Paul longed to see the Romans is that he wanted to exchange gifts, as it were. He wanted to exchange gifts. He wanted to give whatever gifts he might have for them, and he wanted to receive their gifts as well. He, he was after spiritual edification. I just want that to sink in. That's, that was right at the heart of what he's after. If you don't long to be with the brethren, if if being with God's people doesn't build you up and encourage you, it may be because there needs to be more gospel, more spiritual mindedness in your conversations, you know, more spiritual edification, more talk about the things of the Lord. Every Christian community or sub-community is going to have the the subjects that tend to dominate the conversations, that tend to just creep in naturally, right? Uh, You know, it may be sports. The church I grew up in, we... That, that was the, one of the main things a lot of us had in common. It, it, maybe it's television shows or movies. It could be literature. It, it could be current events and intellectual ideas. It may be guns and, and gold and government, those kinds of... Perhaps you find that your conversations with believers never get beyond work and weather. Now, if you're discouraged by this, then be the source of the solution. Starting this week, perhaps even today during the potluck, intentionally engage with people with the purpose of fortifying them in their faith. It doesn't have to be like this big major thing that you do, just just a word of encouragement, a a question 
that, that gets into deeper matters. The goal of sharing a spiritual gift with someone is that they are established in their faith. The end of verse 11 says, so that you may be established. Principle number five then is Christians establish one another. End of verse 11. Of course, we know that it's God who establishes believers, but the key, a key instrument that God uses is other believers in accomplishing this, this establishing. Um, you can't be established in your faith if you're not vitally connected to other Christians who are speaking into your life, discipling you, challenging you, teaching you, providing examples for you, helping you, walking through important life events with you, and encouraging you, rebuking you, all, all those things. We all need it. And if you're not vitally connected, vitally connected to a community, you're not going to be receiving those things as you ought. In verse 11, Paul isn't, he's not expressing a desire to come into their midst and display signs, wonders, and miracles, the things that mark apostles. Maybe that happened. That's not his emphasis at all. No, Paul knows that God, God alone dispenses spiritual gifts as he wills. He's not presumptuous about what's going to happen. He's not coming to impart spiritual gifts from on high. Uh, share is a better word to use in verse 11 than impart. Paul's coming simply to be used in whatever way God might choose to use him to help establish the churches and the Christians in Rome. According to verse 12, he's also coming to be strengthened himself. Don't miss that. And he, it's, you know, in case he wasn't clear in verse 11, Paul makes it explicit in verse 12 that he's looking forward to receiving their ministry to him as well. Verse 12, or rather, and that's a clarification phrase there, it means, you know, more precisely, or rather, that when I am with you, we might be mutually encouraged, each through the other's faith, both yours and mine. The sixth principle is that Christians encourage one another. I said it before and I'll say it again. I need your spiritual gifts. I need you to establish me. I need you to encourage me in my faith. So does Doug. So does Bobby. So does Blake. Before any of us are pastors or elders or deacons, we are members of a body, and as such, we need your love and correction and encouragement and discipleship. Paul was an apostle, but more fundamental to that, he was a believer, a Christian who needed to receive spiritual gifts from other believers. He wasn't a lone ranger Christian. John Stott captures Paul's heart in this passage well, especially in verse 12, Stott says, Paul knows about the reciprocal blessings of Christian fellowship, and although he is an apostle, he is not too proud to acknowledge his need of it. 
Happy is the modern missionary who goes to another country and culture in the spirit and the same spirit of receptivity. Anxious to receive as well as give. To learn as well as teach. To be encouraged as well as to encourage. If Paul could, could acknowledge his need for fellowship and encouragement, surely we can as well. Already in Paul's introduction, Paul has mentioned the gospel three times in 15 verses. And he's going to mention it again in, the very ne- in, in verse 16, the next time we'll look at it. In verse 1, he calls it the gospel of God. In verse nine, uh, yeah, 9, he calls it the gospel of God's Son. In verse 15, he uses the verb form, preach the gospel. It's one word, but it has that the... the the word gospel is in this verb. It just kind of turns it into a verb. Preach the gospel. And in verse 16, he'll, he'll refer to the gospel of Christ. For Paul, the gospel was central to who he was and to everything he did. He was gospel-centered. That phrase is, is falling on hard times, maybe in some circles, but I think we should keep it. For Paul, the gospel includes both salvation and sanctification. It it establishes a church and it matures a church. It redeems individuals and it transforms, sanctifies individuals. It provides for both imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. I know that's pretty theological. For, for those of you who remember going through the, the R.C. Sproul class that we did, the small groups, a couple years ago, do you remember the difference between imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness? Those are really great categories, important categories. Imputed righteousness is the righteousness of Christ that gets credited to your account by faith in, in Christ and it's what saves you, justifies you. You're justified before God because an alien right, outside righteousness has been imputed to you, credited to you. That's the imputed righteousness. Imparted righteousness is the personal holiness, your personal righteousness, your, your good works, your faithfulness, that the Spirit works in you after you're saved. He, he imparts this holiness that is seen. You could call it the obedience that comes from faith. And you need both kinds of righteousness. And God has to give you both kinds by grace alone. And the gospel accomplishes both for you and in you. In In verses 13 to 15, Paul looks forward to preaching the gospel in the churches in Rome. Not only to see people come to Christ, but also to see the Roman believers grow in Christ. Verse 13, let's read those three verses from the handout. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often intended to come to you, but I have been prevented up to the present time, in order to obtain some fruit among you, even as I have done among the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to to the wise and to the foolish, Hence my eager desire to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. The, 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 the final principle is that Christians speak the gospel to one another. 
None of us is called to be an apostle. And most of us aren't called to be preachers. But you don't have to be an apostle or a preacher to speak the gospel to others. We learn from this passage that the gospel is not just for unbelievers. Paul, the gospel is not just you know, a, a, a gospel track designed to get people saved. Okay? We shouldn't reduce the gospel to that. That, you know, that. that is the gospel that we share with people when we want to see them saved. But Paul's writing here to believers whose faith in Christ is being proclaimed throughout the world. Some commentators, just not knowing what to do with this preach the gospel verb, they try to, they try to make it so that these Roman, I guess not Christians, church members are not Christians, that, that they don't actually have faith, and Paul's wanting to, you know, to see them saved. Well, that's not what's going on at all. He wants to proclaim the gospel to these believers. He's not writing to unsaved people, and yet he eagerly desires to preach the gospel to them. So it's not just for non-Christians, which is to say we shouldn't reduce the gospel to, the, to four spiritual laws or to justification by faith. It includes that, but it incl- the gospel includes more. The gospel is what I preach to you every week. And I don't just preach to you every week a simple evangel- evangelistic you know, revivalistic sermon. If you ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, where in the book of Romans do you proclaim the gospel? He would tell you that the gospel of God and his son can be found on every page and every chapter. Assuming he knows about our chapters and verses. Now, he might qualify his answer by saying something like, now, of course, right here and here, and here are where I go straight to the heart of the matter. Here's where I go deep on propitiation. The propitiation of God's wrath on the cross. Oh, oh, and here's where I nailed down the imputed righteousness of Christ. But make no mistake, it, mistake about it, Paul would say, I consider the entire book, in fact, I consider all of my writings that are in the New Testament that turned out to be inspired to be explanations and applications and proclamations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was a gospel-centered man who wanted to see gospel-centered Christians and gospel-centered churches. I'll say again what I said earlier. For Paul, the gospel includes both salvation and sanctification. It establishes a Christian church and it matures a Christian church. It redeems individuals and it transforms individuals. It provides for both imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. What can you do to be more gospel-centered? What can you do in your marriage And in the conversations at your dinner table or in the car rides, to be more centered on God and his gospel. How can you use your time to saturate your heart and your mind and your eyes and your ears with gospel truths? What will it take to transform your relationships with other Christians so that you spend more time speaking the gospel to one another. Principle seven is really just a summary 
of principles 4, 5, and 6. When you encourage and establish and share the gospel with other believers, you're speaking the gospel to them. It's a gospel activity. And and principle 7 is also the driving force behind principles 1, 2, and 3. The gospel compelled Paul to pray for other believers. The gospel created in Paul a, a longing to see other people who have been saved by that gospel and to experience fellowship and mutual ministry with them. Paul's prayers and spiritual gift and fellowship and ministry were all expressions of the gospel. He's he's trying to tell us this by using the word over and over again, four times in 16 verses. Everything Paul did was saturated with gospel. Paul casts a vision for us of gospel-centered and gospel-fueled fellowship. He casts a vision of a Christian community that is centered on God and His Son and their gospel. To implement this vision, we'll need to continue to be intentional about these things in our body life in the coming days, weeks, months, and years, and decades. We'll need to be diligent in thanking God for one another and making mention of one another in prayer. We'll need to spend time with one another and create opportunities to share spiritual gifts with one another. To share gifts. To exchange gifts. For the purpose of establishing and encouraging one another in the faith. And if we do these things, the gospel will continue to form us and transform us, as Paul says, until we attain, until we all attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's pray and ask for him to accomplish that in us. Oh God, we need your help to live out this vision that we see in verses 8 to 15. And so we pray that your spirit would work this in us, that we might be able to produce to live out the obedience of faith in our in our lives and our families and in our congregation and in our relationships with Christians outside of this congregation and that we would do it for the sake of Christ and that we would do it as those who are centered on his gospel help us we pray in Jesus name Amen.